Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now, the deputy editor at The Ringer, also hosts group chat on The Ringer NBA show. It is Justin Verrier. Verrier, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm great. I can't say the same for the Celtics, but uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, last time we had you on, the Celtics were rolling. We're talking about this historic pace that they're on. And now, all of a sudden, they've been in a major funk, especially after the All-Star break. And Verrier, like, before we get into some of the specifics with this team, it just really feels like something's off. Like, the defense isn't the same. The offense isn't the same. It just doesn't seem like they've had that same fire that they had for the majority of the season. And the thing that surprises me is this is the time of the year where you should be starting to click on all cylinders. Like, you look at the East right now. Philly's playing out of its mind. Milwaukee's rolling right now. This should be the time where the Celtics are getting close to peaking and they're going in the wrong direction. I know. I've been trying to stop myself because I'm sure if you were to say next year, for instance, like, oh, XYZ happened in mid-March, everyone would just throw it out the window and be like, oh, who cares? Like, small sample, uh, no one's trying, et cetera, et cetera. And there are a lot of caveats happening right now, right? No, Rob, they didn't have, what, three players last night against the Jazz? Uh, there's just a lot to really point to to suggest, like, maybe there's some noise going on here. But a lot of it, I think, just heightens some of the concerns you already have for this team. Tatum, not being aggressive, being kind of flat. How many times did we say that over the course of the past two, three years with Tatum and Brown? Like, oh, God, be aggressive, be aggressive, be aggressive. And then the coaching, obviously, Missoula's young. And then not having Rob, it's like, yeah, on the one hand, he's hurt and you can't really blame him for that. On the other hand, he's always hurt and he's always not available. And so, like, is that really going to change going forward? So it's like, I want to be fair and balanced. I want to weigh, like, this being a late March game and et cetera, et cetera. But, like, man, it, it really is, is concerning, I think, at this point. Yeah, and I mean, even if you just look like the final minute of that game last night, there's examples of it that they're just not on the same page right now. Like you have a play late in the game after the Celtics take a 117-113 lead 
where there's a miscommunication between Brogdon and Grant, and it results in a wide open three for Laurie Marketing because they both go with Kelly Olynyk. Then they're coming out of a timeout, and there's 35 seconds left in the game, and they want to get a two for one. And Jason Tatum, who literally there's like one high volume pull up shooter that's worse than him in the league right now, it's Paolo Bancaro. He takes a 29 footer, which he's not hitting all season long. And then the next possession down, he just goes to his left and he throws up like a fall away jump shot. And then at the end of the game, they run the same play that they run at the end of every single game. And Will Hardy clearly knows what they're doing. <laughs> he tells them, hey, make sure that Grant catches the ball going towards the basket, not the other way, because they want Tatum to come down from like midcourt, get the ball. We saw it against the Cavs. We saw it against the Rockets, although he missed the layup in that game. We saw it against Philly when he hit that three. And it just seems like for whatever reason, like Missoula is gung-ho on going back to that play. But those little things that happen late in the game, like this is a team that has aspirations to win a championship. And even being down those guys that we referenced last night, Al's not playing, Smart's not playing, Rob's still not in the lineup right now. Late in the game, being up on a Utah Jazz team, like you've got to be able to finish the job right now. So I do think it is becoming a little bit concerning. And you mentioned the coach. I think we've got questions now with the rotation late in games. I still have no idea what he was doing with Grant Williams for the past month and change. Now, finally, Grant hit the seven threes last night. But it just seems like right now, maybe he's feeling the pressure, even though he said that interim tag lifted. I know. And even in that last Grant play, you saw how Walker Kessler didn't bite on the first pump fake, almost as if he knew it was coming. I don't know if they like saw something in the scout or whatever. It just feels like the Jazz were that crisp, like prepared team. I think you used to see from the Celtics, like in the early era, Brad Stevens teams, where it's like, I mean, to make the the Danny Angel Linux comp, they just looked a little bit more like that type of team playing above its head because they were so organized and and so like ready for everything. Whereas like the Celtics just seem in disarray. And I have to point back to maybe like Missoula just kind of being a little bit more of a for free spirit, I guess, for lack of a better word, than Udoka last year, where he really drilled on them to to like really instilled kind of that edge and the structure they probably needed, whereas Missoula's kind of letting them improvise and do this other stuff. And I wonder if they're just not ready for it. And I also am starting to wonder if Missoula himself isn't ready for it. I wonder if certain teams are catching up to him in the same way that they would uh, a player kind of getting fire and, and kind of rising in the league. And then everyone gets the scout on and, and, and figures things out. It just seems like to your point, like he's making a lot of simple mistakes that I was willing to give him credit for early on, like not attacking the weak defenders and, and, and doing some of the simple things that I, as a fan can kind of see. So I'm sure someone like Will Hardy can see. So I don't know, man, it's, it, it's looking a little dicey for, for him in particular. Yeah, it's a really good point about Ime, too, because like the miscommunication I referenced earlier with Brogdon and Grant, that's not happening if Ime Adoka is still the head coach. We understand why he's not here, but he held these guys to such a high standard defensively, and they all like wanted to be the best defender on the team. They talked about it. Tatum talked about before the season that he thought he was the best defender, and they just have not had that type of energy on that side of the court. Now, Missoula has done some things that have helped out offensively for sure, but then I go back to the whole idea like Derek White's not playing in the fourth quarter. This is a topic of conversation locally here very that we've been having on going on for a while. He's like the plus minus king on this team. From my perspective, considering that he's been out there basically every game the entire season, he's been their third best player. I mean, Al Horford's been great, too. And like the way that he's able to shoot from three point territory has been great for this team. And maybe you could argue he's the third most important just because of Rob's absence. But 
I just don't understand why Derek White is not on the court at the end of these games. I can't understand it. Like, my only guess is, like, he's trying to get Smart going, and obviously Smart didn't play against Utah, but Derek White still isn't on the floor. It's just, it's very perplexing to me. Yeah, and, and that's where you worry, like, maybe a coach that doesn't have the same amount of experience might be relying on things that have worked for him before. Like, maybe he's just falling into rotation patterns and becoming too set in his ways when he probably needs uh, to, to to feed the hot hand, to, to, to switch things up and be a little bit more open to that. I wonder if that's experience, but I don't know. This one's perplexing because I think like everybody and their mothers can tell you that Derek White has been playing above his head for, <laughs> for large stretches of the season at this point. So like, I, I don't know. I would, I would have to assume it's preference, but... I, it beats me, honestly. Yeah, and Smart, like, he has not looked like the same player, especially since he came back from the injury. But even if you go back to earlier in the season, he really started poorly, then he kind of found it, but he hasn't been the same guy coming back from that ankle injury, and he continues to hurt it. Like, now, last night, that's not why it was that he's dealing with a hip contusion, but over and over again, we've seen he, he's had these issues with the ankle, which just feels like it's going to continue to happen this season. All right, I want to preface with what I'm about to say with, I love Jason Tatum. He's one of my favorite players in the NBA. He's an all-NBA guy, star and all this. But if you look at his numbers since the All-Star break, 42.3% from the field. He's 29.2% from three. Now, good thing is, and this is a major improvement for him, he is getting to the line still eight times per game since the All-Star break, something he didn't do, of course, for the majority of his career. And he started to live at the line, which I give him a lot of credit for. But he's really had difficulties in the fourth quarter this year. He's at 43.8% compared to Jalen at 53.6. 34.5% from deep compared to Jalen, who's at 39.3%. And Tatum has now been, not just uh, from a pull-up perspective, but he's been a below-average three-point shooter now for the past two seasons. And it's interesting to me because I feel like now he almost has to get to the free throw line to be an efficient scorer. Like, and I think this is maybe what separates him from the elite of the elite offensive players in the league, right? Like we all know what Tatum can do from a two-way perspective, but I was making this point the other day is like, okay, well, what does he go to when he needs a basket? I feel like he almost is reliant on getting to the free throw line, sort of like Harden was back in the day where he always had to get to the free throw line. But you see so many of these other guys like Luca, how great he is in isolation situations can get to his floater. We know about Durant and his pull-up shooting, Kawhi and his pull-up shooting. I just feel like this is kind of what's missing from Tatum's game is like that signature spot on the floor where he can go to and he knows he's going to score. It almost seems like that place is actually the free throw line now, which is amazing to think about because early on in his career, he never got to the line. Yeah, you could see him hunting for the jumper a little bit more than you should be comfortable with. Uh, there was one play in the Wolves game, I remember specifically, where he was setting a screen where he could have easily dove toward the rim and attacked, and he kind of just floated toward the perimeter. And I almost wonder if like, if the perimeter shot isn't going, because he's had so much success for that this season, earlier this season, that maybe it just like screws up his approach. Like Maybe he's using that to set up the drive or using the drive to set up the shot, and it's not like working as well, and he doesn't know what to do there. I also wonder if fatigue is playing a factor here. The one thing I've been really tracking here is like to play small in the NBA requires a lot of, in particular, your wings. And I think people forget that even though the Celtics have Rob, they have Horford, and they tend to go a little bit bigger in the front court, Brown and Tatum are doing a lot in terms of being two-way wings that I think a lot of go-to scorers in this league aren't. And I think it's not a surprise that a lot of the MVP candidates this year are centers who are built to withstand the pounding and to be able to be a two-way force because they have all that extra heft and 
and whatnot. I it feels like something might be wearing on Tatum. I wonder also considering that they haven't he's never been kind of the go-to MVP guy for a full season. I wonder if he kind of wore out doing that earlier and now is starting to see some of uh, the downsides of that. But something's off there. And I, I think it's concerning because especially in the MVP conversation, you're seeing guys like Embiid, not so much Jokic these days, but uh, definitely Giannis and Embiid kind of rise to the fore. And like that is the separation between a very good all-NBA guy, as you're alluding to, and the next level, which is what we thought Tatum was, but maybe we were a little bit too soon on that. Yeah, it's a fair point. I think it's interesting, too, about like everything he has to do on the defensive end of the floor, especially with the absence of Rob, where at the beginning of the season, there were times where they were like using him in Rob's role, where he was like the roamer and trying to be the shot blocker. And going back to last season, if you look at the regular season and the postseason, he played way more minutes than anybody else in the sport. And I know he's a young player, but there could be some of that starting to set in. Now, Jalen is actually going in the other direction. So since he came back from the all-star break and the injury to his face, he is at 27.8 a game. He's 50.2% from the field, 38.7% from deep. And I actually looked at, we always talked about the turnovers last year for Jalen in the postseason because it became such a problem, right? It was so obvious he's driven the ball off his foot. But his shot making was incredible in that postseason. And it does feel like right now, he's made more of an effort post-All-Star break to get into the paint and sort of use his physicality even more of a weapon than we've seen in the past. But it feels like if we're going to look at Tatum and the struggles he's having, maybe this is like the silver lining in all this, that Jalen Brown is now arguably having like, and I know it's a small sample size, but he's having one of the best little stretches of his career. Yeah, and that's that's the flip side of it. Maybe so much extra defensive attention on Tatum is allowing Brown to be that. And that is the advantage of having probably the best two stars in, in the league, definitely the best two-way guys in the league, is that it affords Brown those sort of opportunities. It definitely plays into Brown's kind of MO as well. I know he was talking a lot about being the leader post Adoka and like really relishing that role. And he kind of feels like the guy who wants to be the badass who comes and saves the day in a way that Tatum probably doesn't. I don't know if that's purely based on disposition and personality more so than like actually how things play out. But like this doesn't surprise me. Um, and he's definitely floated at times trying to be a part of the Tatum role, but I've never uh, the Tatum show, but I've never kind of bought that with Brown. I kind of see him as a one B at least in terms of approach and personality more than ever as this kind of caddy defensive minded two who's able to kind of fill in for Tatum. And so to see him take off is great because they definitely needed it in the past couple games. Yeah. And I wonder if he'll like do the rip Hamilton and just keep the masks because ever since he put the mask <laughs> on, he's been like incredible. I kind of like to look for him too. So, by the way, I, I was looking at this, too, because the guard line in the NBA in terms of the all-NBA guys, it's so deep. But if Jalen and cleaning the glass has it at 57% of his possessions are at small forward, so he's actually played more forward technically this year than he has guard, and that has to do a lot because Rob Williams has been injured the majority of the season, not playing a lot of two big lineups. But if he's a forward, do you think he actually makes an all-NBA team? Because I think there's a there's obviously a much better chance at the forward line because of all the, you're talking about LeBron's been hurt and Kevin Durant's been hurt. Kawhi Leonard, he's probably going to make it now that he's played, you know, he's going to play enough games. But Jalen's going to have a really good shot here, I think, to make it if he's on the forward line. Yeah, it's going to be really difficult. Um, you would think that the if the Celtics can stick in at least the three seed in the East. And if they stay in this kind of tier they are where they're like, maybe not the front runners anymore, but definitely in that next group of teams, 
that a lot of voters would give him preference over some of these other players who have been successful statistically, but maybe the wins aren't there. I mean, Markkanen is a prime example. I think statistically Markkanen is probably has a better case, but Brown has, has the wins and that tends to appeal to voters in a way that like, if you're just stepping back and, and you're doing the post about like, Oh, who will be in all NBA just based on uh, everything else. I think he would, he would get it there, but it's thick, man. There's just a lot of those guys who are performing well on on kind of middling teams, and so it's hard to tell. He's definitely on on the the line. I would say I, I would probably give him preference, but I don't know. Yeah, and I got to imagine too that the Celtics want this to happen, right? Because if he doesn't, and then you're going into a free agency or the next year after last next year is the last year on his contract, like they probably just want to be able to put that supermax in front of Jalen and say like, here's the deal, because. Then you get like if they have an ugly exit, like let's say I knock on wood that doesn't happen. But if they have an ugly exit, maybe Jalen starts getting eyes for somewhere else, especially considering the stretch he's on right now where he probably thinks he could have his own team. I, now, I would disagree with that, but he probably thinks that way. So I can imagine that the front office is like, please, voters, give Jalen all NBA. So to make our life a lot easier. Yeah, or they're like, please don't, so we don't have to pay both guys the super max. True. <laughs> we can at least True. get away with one <laughs> max because, man, it's going to get pricey pretty soon here. Yeah, and the other thing is, you mentioned Rob earlier, and basically, they don't get any offensive rebounds without Rob. They have nobody that can be like a threat at the basket in terms of a lob threat. Defensively, he completely is a game changer for them, changes everything they do. But like last year, they make it to the finals, and they really didn't have a healthy Rob Williams until maybe the very tail end of that Warriors series. So it felt like Rob was like, okay, if he's there, he can put you over the top. But now the way this team's playing defensively, where the point of attack defense has not been good, they're 23rd in isolation defense. So on the perimeter, they've not been the same team. Offensively right now, we've seen them really after that 21 and five start, they've been a mediocre offensive team. They've been about 15th in offensive rating since that 21 and five start. So I do sort of wonder if now it's almost like, they need Rob. Like Rob was almost like the luxury item that helped them get over the top last year. And it does feel like this year they need Rob to be great, which is very difficult to project considering the guy has only played in 28 games. And we've seen every year there's always something with him in terms of the injuries. Yeah, see, I was always in the camp that they needed Rob no matter how well they played without him. I think I just if you watch last year's postseason, the difference between the Celtics being great and being just like capable was Rob being on the even in the finals, he was probably the biggest difference maker for the Celtics, if not their best player, but certainly someone who made such a dramatic impact that it shifted the shape of the game. Uh, and you could just see it, even when he was playing kind of with a second unit, even the, the effect he has on the offense, not only the defense, but yes, the offensive rebounding, which is absolutely putrid to the point of almost non-existent without him on the floor, his ability to like spark breaks and kind of like get out on on the floor, even at his size. Like I almost feel like they need him to be able to, to have a chance here, especially when you look at some of the competition awaiting them in, in the East, like you have to get through Giannis or Embiid and like, how are the Celtics going to guard without him? Like, yeah, they have Horford who has this, the history with Embiid, but like, I don't know. I'm, it's just not as a solid thing without someone like Rob there. So I, you have to imagine that trickle down effect of not having him there is, is leading to some of the issues we're talking about. But man, like I, I, I've never liked the Celtics in a playoff race if he's not going to be available at least some of the time. Yeah, well, and it makes total sense, too, in terms of the offense, because they always have like 
they're better than the best offense in the league when he's on the floor from a rating standpoint. And the second chance points per 100, they're at 15.9 with Rob on the floor, which would be in the top five. Without him, they're at 11.5, which is 27th. So they basically go from being elite at that to they don't get any offensive rebounds whatsoever. So it is going to be major going forward if they can get him healthy. The other guy that I think is major to this team which is another interesting thing kind of on the Derek White theme, is Grant Williams. So he hits the seven threes against the Jazz, which is nice to see Grant on the floor that much. It was his first 20-point game since the 21st of January. So I just think when I look at Grant Williams, we know what he is, right? He can shoot, and maybe he gets annoying sometimes. Like, we can all watch the game and realize that Grant gets annoying, especially with the officials and whatnot. But I start to think about some of the things that Missoula's been doing with him, and I know he's been dealing with an elbow injury as well, but... That wasn't why he wasn't getting DNPs. And there's games where Blake Griffin is the first big off the bench or Luke Cornett is getting into the game over Grant Williams. To me, like going back to this whole theme of the playoffs, Grant's going to be important in a Philadelphia series. Grant is definitely going to be important in a Milwaukee series. So I just don't understand why Missoula continues to sort of, for lack of a better term, fuck around with Grant Williams. Like you kind of need this guy to make a run. Like, am, am I crazy or is this is just, just seem like one of the, more, and I know there's been a lot of weird st- stories in the league this year, but this seems like one of the more bizarre storylines that before the season, nobody would have thought Grant would be getting DNPs. Yeah, it seems like at times that maybe his confidence is shaken. And Grant is definitely the type of player where he needs to be kind of a front runner. He needs to be playing with a head of steam and he needs to be talking crap to everybody. He's like, he's very much in the Draymond Dylan Brooks role where like he is at his best when he's just like causing havoc there. And you can kind of see when he's uncertain how much that affects him. And I don't know how much that's playing into it. And I'm sure the DNPs don't help there, but it's particularly troubling just because as you kind of alluded to, like the front court is just very shaky. I mean, last night there was a Cornet Mascala front court and I was like, Oh God, this is probably a sign of like how much we should read into the results of this game after seeing that. But like, you know, you look back to the trade deadline and I, I know that they got Mascala in there. I thought that was a really smart pickup at a low cost. But like you wonder, do they actually need someone a little bit more of like a Jakob Pertle, who I, I believe they kind of flirted with um, to shore that up? Because like there aren't any like surefire answers here. And if Grant isn't going to be that guy, you're right. Like, who are they turning to? Because Blake is pretty much just like a body who will get in front of people and take charges at this point. Like whatever stretch he had to his game is pretty much gone. Whatever verticality he had to his game, he's pretty much a hustle big at this point. And so you're really like you're pulling at straws here. So you don't have Rob, you don't have Grant who we're used to relying on. Like, who are we turning to? It's really Al. And as we've seen, like Al's not going to play all the time because he's like, what, 30 something years old. So uh, it's a little shakier than you would expect considering how much depth they have. Yeah. And we saw like the further the postseason went on last year with Al, like when it was just that one day in between, especially when you got later on in the playoff run, he did get fatigued when he had those extra days in between. Then he looked fresh. I think they're doing the right thing with him during the regular season. Make sure he doesn't play in any back to backs. I know he was like pulling to play in that one yesterday, but I think they've done the right thing. But the problem is it leaves a hole because of the injury to Rob. Do you think when Rob's back, they'll go back to the double big to try to get back to that defensive identity because now we'll see how many minutes he can play when he first comes back. But it does feel like now they almost need to do it just in terms of what's been going on on that side of the floor. I would, if only because it feels like they like carved out their identity in that way last year. And I wonder if you just kind of go with something that works, if only to provide like to stabilize the ship 
a little bit and see how it goes from there. I, I don't know if it's their best approach considering how versatile they are and um, how much I think that probably plays to their advantage, especially against some of the bigger teams in the East. But I would, if only because I know that works. I, I blitzed through the East last year and in the second half of last season with that approach. Why not go back to it? That, that's kind of where I land. Yeah, makes sense. I just wish that I mean, Missoula's all about like giving Blake minutes and giving Cornette minutes. I wish he tried some things that would actually maybe benefit them in the postseason. Like, for example, Brogdon, White, Jalen, and Tatum, that foursome has only played 66 minutes together. Like, that would be something that I would have been experimenting with during this, especially considering Smart missed a big chunk of time this season. Like, I would have been trying out these different lineups. But, hey, Vera, I want to get your take on the East in general because Middleton, of course, we've heard it. All year long, like the Bucks would have beat the Celtics if they had Middleton last year. Like that continues to be a thing that we hear here. But it seems like they ramped his minutes up. Like I was looking the last month he's playing or since the start of the month, he's playing 31 minutes per game, averaging about seven assists. Is he close to the guy that we saw pre-injury last year? Like, is he almost back or? There are flashes. Um, we did a podcast after last week's game. I think it was Bucks and Warriors. And there were times, especially in the clutch, where he would just drill a shot and you're like, oh, that looks like Chris Middleton again. But there were also times where like he would slip or like he wouldn't be as sharp or wouldn't be as fast as he would be attacking a closeout. And I'm kind of like, that's not that great. Um, so it's still up in the air. I think you're starting to see signs of it. That's probably the bigger question. I think that the, the Bucks though, have built themselves a little bit of a cushion, just given some of the depth moves that they've, they've been able to uh, uh, acquire over the past couple of weeks and over the course of the season to the point where they haven't been able to, or they haven't needed to really put as much pressure on Middleton. Um, so we'll see, but they do have options. They have Jay Crowder, Joe Ingles, some of these guys who are giving them more. So you won't probably get into a situation where, you know, Grant Williams hitting seven threes or whatever it is will beat you. Uh, because you don't have the firepower to match it. On the other hand, I don't know. You kind of need Middleton in order to to match up, especially with a team like the Sixers, who seems like they could do no wrong at this point. Yeah, and I mean, in that series against the Celtics, they just they didn't have a lot of playmaking last year, and they could, they desperately needed Middleton in that series. But looking at uh, Philadelphia, so I referenced that eight game winning streak, and Bead's obviously playing at an MVP level. Looks like probably he's going to win it at this particular point in time, based on the fall off of the Nuggets, and Embiid's playing better than. Jokic right now, but I look at that potential 2-3 matchup with the Celtics, and right now, Philly, technically as of today, they have the two-seed in front of the Celtics by, like, percentage points, but Harden, I feel like the Seas have a lot of guys they can throw at them when we're talking about White, and we'll see if Smart gets back to the defender that he's been, but even Jalen Brown could spend some time on him, and they've never really had enough wings for Tatum and Brown. Now, I know they picked up McDaniels, but McDaniels is a guy that, going back to a game earlier this year in Charlotte, Tatum just completely lights that guy up, so I just don't know, like, I, I know Philadelphia is playing at an insane level right now, but I don't know if they match up well with the Celtics. Where are you at with Philly? Yeah, I think the Celtics are probably a worse matchup for them than the Bucks in some ways, just because mm. they just don't have the wing depth, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's just, the, the Sixers have been fine reinserting Tyrese Maxey into the starting lineup, but... It, I'm a little bit mixed on that. It's not, it's, I think it's like, what is it? Eight in a row, but also nine and one over the past 10, which is incredible, especially this late in the season. This, the schedule has been pretty soft. It's been pretty charming. So I'm, I'm looking at that with a little bit of a, uh, a skeptical eye here. Um, I don't know who's guarding Tatum and Brown out of that. I guess PJ and, and you can cobble together enough. Tobias Harris was, was kind of working as a wing stopper sort of 
uh, against the Cavs the other night. And in addition to like all the, the, the bodies that they can throw at Embiid, I was kind of, I, I was bullish on what the Cavs did without Jared Allen against Embiid the other night. Embiid had a great game. He's always going to have a great game, but it seemed like they flustered him enough by throwing bodies at him. It was like, I, I like to call it the Gulliver's uh, travel defense <laughs> because it was just like a little, a lot of little guys swiping down on him that flustered him. And we know that like Embiid getting doubled, I think it, it, it starts to create problems for him. So I wonder if in addition to not only having Al ready as, as an Embiid stopper um, kind of there in the fold, I also wonder if they have enough in order to take them out. So I actually like that matchup for the Celtics a good deal. Yeah, and we've seen it too, like in the past, Embiid, to your point about like the doubles, he's been really turnover prone against the Celtics where they'll like fake like they're going after him and he'll throw the ball away. Like we've seen him get really, really frustrated against the Celtics. All right, so before we let you go, Barrier, looking at like the six through eight range, because it looks like the Seas are not going to catch Milwaukee for that. I would be surprised if they get the one at this point, especially the way Milwaukee's playing. But Brooklyn, Miami, Atlanta, Toronto's right there as well. Uh, we always worry about Miami here because of the history. I mean, it was seven games last year. It never should have been seven games. The series in the bubble as well. Atlanta, we saw them, what, a week ago Saturday, and that defense is just pathetic. Like, I wouldn't worry about them whatsoever. But out of that group, is there a team there that you think could put in a scare to the Celtics in that first round? So it's Miami, but it depends on which Miami team they get. Like, on the one hand, I just feel like Miami is the typical knife to a gunfight where they just don't have the three-point firepower these days to match up with the team. And if the Celtics are hitting, like I just don't know where it is. At the same time, Jimmy Butler is just a badass. And I wonder if yeah. like there's some PTSD, especially from last year's postseason where that one came down to the wire, where like you really don't want to see that guy in a series. I Toronto. I've I've always wondered what's going on there because there's just so much talent and it worked to a certain extent last season in a way that it hasn't at times now. But since Pirtle's been back with that team, they've been a little bit better and Siakam the past two games has been better than he has been in recent. It seems like there's a weird like Barnes or Siakam thing going. Uh, it doesn't seem like both of them are really on the same page. And obviously they've had more and more issues in the half court, but like that's the type of team where it's like, you know, they've, they've got enough wing depth. They've got the bodies. I don't think that they would beat the Celtics, but that's, you know, if they stretch out a series longer than you want it to, is that going to have a ripple effect down there? But I mean, I like the Celtics against any of these teams. <laughs> I think it's really a have, have not in the East, which is, which is nice to be one of the haves. Yeah, one thing I remember about that Raptors team with Nick Nurse, like the series the Celtics play them in the bubble, like, man, they would just try everything. They would just throw out a bunch of different stuff and try it. I know, like, it felt like at one point this year, maybe he was in hot water there, but it feels like, yeah, to your point, like with Pirtle back in Toronto now, it seems like they're playing a lot better. And that would be a team that I wouldn't want to see just because of the Nick Nurse factor as well. Like anybody with like a really good coach, uh, like Spolster, obviously, like that kind of scares me with Joe Missoula, right? Like that's, that's what I'm worried about more so than anything else. All right, that is Justin Verrier, deputy editor for The Ringer, also host group chat on The Ringer NBA feed as well. Verrier, thanks so much for the time, man. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Justin Verrier. As we get closer to the postseason, man, I'm really starting to get worried about this Celtics team. Like, I thought they'd just get out of this funk, but they're still 
very much in this funk. And they get a big game, of course, coming up on Tuesday against Sacramento, who's been rolling right now, the best offense in the NBA. All right, I did want to get to some Patriots and a Red Sox note as well. So first on the Pats, Friday we get the news that they've signed Mike Gusecki from the Miami Dolphins, the tight end. So interesting with him, he never really fit in to the Mike McDaniel offense in Mike McDaniel's first there in Miami. So if you look at his snaps, in 2020, he was at 62% of the snaps. 2021, that number was up to 72% of the snaps. And last year with Mike McDaniel, that number was down to 45%. So not even 50% of the snaps was Gusecki playing in last year. You look at the targets, 2020, 85, 2021, 112, 2022, just 50 targets, right? So clearly he just was not a fit for Mike McDaniel. So it really isn't worth looking at what he did last season because he just wasn't part of that offense whatsoever. In 2020 and 2021, back-to-back 700-yard seasons. So here's what intrigues me about Kaseki. 6'6", almost 250 pounds. He's a massive individual. He's a jump ball machine. So if you look at 2020, he had 17 contested catches. That was second amongst tight ends behind only Darren Waller. In 2021, he had 15 tied for second. Only Mark Andrews had more. He's tied with Kyle Pitts. So the reason I like this is basically he's essentially a big slot receiver. Even Belichick acknowledged he's really not even a tight end. He's basically a big receiver, right? So in 2021, 62.4% of his snaps came in the slot. That was fourth among tight ends. So we talked about the addition of Juju with my buddy Andrew Callahan and what Juju can do as a yak guy, right? The yak perception with Juju 5.5, which was sixth. And then if you look at NextGen's number in terms of yak over expectation, 1.8 for Juju, that was sixth among receivers. So you added something you didn't have with Jacoby Myers and Juju, which is a guy that can make things happen after the catch. And now with Mike Gusecki now in the fold, you've added a contested catch guy that can play in the middle of the field, right? So you didn't have that really with Hunter Henry in terms of the contested catches. Just four contested catches last year for Hunter Henry. And Gusecki, remember, this guy was a combine freak. Going back to his combine, 41.5 in terms of the vertical. That was the best, second best, I should say, in the entire combine, not just among tight ends, second best in the entire combine. So we know he's a freak from an athletic standpoint. So yes, he's not really technically a tight end. Like that may be his position, but he doesn't play that way. But he can help in the middle of the field, which makes life easier for Mac Jones. Those seam routes down the middle, which would be much easier for a guy that can just go up and get the ball. That's like sort of a bailout element to the offense for Mac Jones. And then remember the Patriots last year, they were the worst red zone offense in the NFL, 42.2% in terms of their touchdown percentage in the red zone. So having another big target when you get down closer to the end zone, that's going to be massive as well, where you can just say, hey, let me go throw it up to Mike Gusecki here. Like that's going to be a good weapon for the Patriots to have. So I like this addition. The only thing I will say is certainly it gives you an element in terms of the contested catch that you didn't have before, a guy that helps you in the middle of the field can help out in the red zone as well. Now, the one thing is there are limitations with Gusecki. He's not going to do much after the catch. Like we talk about it with Juju, where this guy's a yak monster. Gusecki's the opposite. He's at 3.2 yak per reception in 2021. That was 41st among tight ends. 2020, he's at 3.3 yak per reception. That was 33rd. So he's not going to do much after the catch, but that's why you have Juju and hopefully... Kendrick Bourne can get back in the fold and help you after the catch as well this year because Matt Patricia, he's not going to be in his doghouse anymore, right? So this team right now, they are better with Juju and Gusecki. They are better than where they were before free agency started. We can all agree on that. No doubt Gusecki is a huge upgrade over John U. Smith, who essentially gave you nothing, right? But here's my whole thing about this. You are still missing the true number one. And that guy to me is Jerry Judy. 
The asking price is now it's either a one or a high second and a player. The Patriots have the 46 overall selection. So I would be calling the Broncos and trying to get that guy, right? The underlying numbers with Jerry Judy are unbelievable. The problem is he's played with no quarterbacks like Russell Wilson. Maybe he bounces back this year, but we all know he's one of the worst quarterbacks in the league last year. You look at his numbers last year, 6.3 yak perception, sixth amongst receivers via next gen, 3.7 yards of separation per target, third, third in the entire NFL. That means this guy is getting wide open when he's targeted. He separates quickly, which a guy like Mac Jones, you want to get the ball out quickly. This is the perfect fit. You look at some of the other numbers that he had, 9.7 yards per target, seventh best in the NFL. Good after the catch, uncovers quickly, played with Mac, as we all know, at Alabama. We saw what Waddle has done, right, with Tua, and we see what Devontae Smith has done with with Jalen Hurts. Like, get Mac his guy from Alabama, and I know they didn't play as much as some of the other receivers because Judy left the year that Mac led that team to the national championship. But I just look at this group. So if you add this guy, Juju, who is a legitimate, or if you add this guy, I should say, Jerry Judy, to the group that already includes Juju, Bourne, Gasecki, Ramondre out of the backfield, then I really feel like you're really helping a quarterback in Mac Jones that we all know from a talent perspective is limited. If you put this group together, like I'm really starting to get excited about what this Patriots offense could look like, but they're still missing that number one guy. So there's still work to be done. I love what they've done so far as it pertains to adding Gasecki, adding a guy like Juju. I understand getting a different type of player than Jacoby Myers, a guy that is more dangerous after the catch. And getting a jump ball threat that can help your quarterback definitely in the red zone, but also in the middle of the field as well. All those moves are nice. Now you have to go make the big move. All right. I didn't want to get to the Sox for a second here because I'm really starting to get intrigued by this Adam Duvall situation because I know he only played 86 games in the 2022 season, but, and his season, of course, ended with the wrist injury. But I'm starting to think he could really be a dynamic player for this team. So he started slow in the spring, but then Saturday he hit an absolute bomb. By the way, if you didn't see that bomb, go back and watch it. This thing was absolutely crushed. Finished two for three in that game. And now he's had basically three home runs in less than a week. So entering Sunday, he looks like the guy that we saw two years ago for the Atlanta Braves when they won the World Series. And look, he's never going to hit for a high average. And same thing could be said this spring. He's hitting 233, but he's slugging 533 and he has a 902 OPS. I'm not saying that spring training numbers are the be all end all, but that's sort of what he's been throughout his career. A guy that hits for a ton of power, not for average. So we know about the gold glove caliber defense. He won the gold glove in 2021. We've referenced that the 19 defensive runs saved tied for the most in terms of outfielders in Major League Baseball that year. So the Red Sox clearly needed an elite defensive outfielder with Kike moving a short. So they solved that with Duvall. We know that he's going to play elite defense out there. He's been doing it for years, but I'm really starting to get interested in the offense. So I alluded to the fact that Duvall is never going to hit for average, but you don't need that from Adam Duvall. You don't want him to hit for average, right? I mean, it'd be great. I mean, I, I guess I'm going crazy here, but offensively, you have guys who are going to hit for average. What you need from him is power. So just to put the metric man hat on here for a second, breaking down how Duvall could have an impact on this team. The Red Sox, in terms of their outfielders last year, do you know how many home runs they hit? 44. 28th in baseball. 28th in home runs as it pertains to their outfielders last year. They slugged 381. That was 21st. They had a 687 OPS. That was 20th in Major League Baseball in terms of the outfielders. Okay, so your outfield, pretty evident, had zero power last year. Now, 
We also know that Duvall in 2021 hit 38 home runs, which ranked 10th in Major League Baseball, tied for 10th actually with Rafael Devers. So here's the thing with Duvall. You're going to get a lot of strikeouts. You're just going to have to live with that. 31.4% strikeout rate in 2021, his last healthy season. Only four players struck out more often than that. Okay, so he strikes out a ton. But Duvall is a launch angle guy, and this is sort of like Heimblum loves launch angle, right? But if you go to that 2021 season, launch angle was 23.6 degrees. That was the highest in all of Major League Baseball. So everything he hits is in the air. So in 2021, he had the second lowest ground ball to fly ball rate in Major League Baseball, okay? He had more fly balls than anybody from a percentage standpoint compared to his ground balls. His ground ball rate was 29.8%. That was 130th out of 132. Nothing's on the ground. Everything's in the air. 52.9% is fly ball rate in general. That was the second highest in Major League Baseball. So based on that launch angle, you get all those fly balls, hence the 38 home runs, and you're getting high quality contact when he actually makes contact, right? So in 2021, the percentage of his batted balls that were barreled up was 16.1%. That is a ridiculous number. It was 12th in Major League Baseball that year. So he is making a ton of loud contact and a ton of good contact, ton of solid contact. And we know he's a big dude, so he carries a lot of power. That's why we saw those power numbers. So what can happen to these launch angle guys is they can get on ridiculous runs where they get super hot. Actually, if you look at Trevor's story last year, huge launch angle guy. Remember, he had seven home runs in the seven games. Now, as I mentioned, the strikeout numbers there with story just like they're there with Adam Duvall. So it goes both ways. But when these guys get hot, it can get frightening. When they're in that rhythm with the launch angle, they're going to hit a ton of balls out of the ballpark. Okay, so here's the other big thing. He's not going to walk a ton, Duvall. Just a 6.3% walk rate in 2021. That was 111th out of 132 qualifiers. Now, I will say this. This spring, he actually has been walking more, which is a good sign, obviously. But based on his history, he chases a lot. In 2021, he swung at 37.6% of pitches out of the zone. That was 119th out of 132 qualifiers. So that's not great. But in Atlanta, he was seeing a ton of traffic on the bases, right? Because remember, that team, of, as we alluded to, they won the World Series. That 21 team had guys like Freddie Freeman, Austin Riley, like high on base guys that were hitting in front of him. So when you have a free swinger like Duvall, you want traffic so the pitcher has to attack him, right? He has to throw the ball in the strike zone, which makes Duvall's life a whole lot easier, right? So just to put this into context, with the bases empty, remember what I said, he strikes out a lot, he doesn't walk, and he chases pitches, right? So that can be an issue when the bases are empty. So if you look at the bases empty in 2021, he hit just 172, he had a 231 on base percentage, 354 slug, 585 OPS, like really ugly numbers, 34.6% strikeout rate. And that was in 295 plate appearances. So he is bad when nobody's on base. With runners on base, 260 plate appearances in 2021, 293, 339, 649, and a 987 OPS, 25 home runs. So elite numbers when men are on base. And how about specifically with runners in scoring position? Well, 158 plate appearances for Duvall in that year. He slugged 757 with runners in scoring position. And, and 158 plate appearances. This is a lot of plate appearances. 757 slug. You know where that ranked in baseball? Number one. He had his isolated power, which is basically you take the slugging percentage and minus the batting average, which tells you how many extra base hits he's getting, so to speak. 431 isolated power. That was first in Major League Baseball. 85 RBIs, second in Major League Baseball. And he hit 326, so he still hit for a good average as it looks at, you're looking at 20th in terms of his batting average and the 18 home runs, first in baseball with runners in scoring position. And that's why he ranked in Fangraph's clutch stat. He ranked 14th in Major League Baseball. 
So he came through in at-bats that basically changed the game. That's what that number tells you in terms of the clutch stats. He's coming up. He's hitting a two-run bomb. He's hitting a two-run double. So you have to look at where he's going to hit in this order. And it's probably going to be behind Turner, who most likely is going to hit third in between Rafi and Yoshida. And he's going to hit in back of both those guys, Turner and Yoshida. And we know Yoshida's reputation, right? He's an on-base machine. And by the way, he's hitting the shit out of the ball at the WBC. He entered Sunday with six hits, two walks, including a home run, 405-22 on base, 667 slug, 1189 OPS. And we know the Red Sox were wild with his power. Like, they didn't realize the power was going to be that good when they signed the guy. I mean, maybe Heim Bloom had an idea, but they're looking at him in, as we know, a middle-of-the-order hitter. And we know that he came over, of course, from Japan with the rep of being a high OBP guy in terms of last year. He's like over 4, 450, actually. And then with Justin Turner coming back from the injury... He's a career 366 on base percentage guy, and he doesn't strike out. So I look at another guy that could benefit from Yoshida and Turner. It's Verdugo, right? Because Verdugo is really a guy that does not take a lot of pitches, right? You look at Verdugo last season. He doesn't strike out, but he doesn't take a lot of pitches. Like 13.4% strikeout rate. That's really good. 16th of 130 hitters, but he doesn't walk, right? He's not going to take pitches. 6.5% walk rate, 102nd out of 130th. So Verdugo, like Duvall, will benefit from guys like Turner and Yoshida in this lineup. So this lineup right now is starting to make more and more sense to me. If you have high on-base percentage guys that are getting on base in front of Adam Duvall, it's proven. This guy will deliver. If the pitchers have to attack Adam Duvall, he's going to do damage. So I And the way that he's swinging the bat right now, he looks like the guy that was part of that World Series team in 2021. I'm starting to get awfully excited about him. And I'm starting to get awfully excited about what this lineup could potentially look like. All right, a lot more to get into. We'll get into the bees in a second. And we will give you our greatest Boston bet of the week. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back into Off the Pike, recording this final part of the pod after the bees just beat the shit out of the Buffalo Sabres. Seven to nothing. Just if you're a Sabres fan, I don't know why anybody listening would be a Sabres fan, but that team, that was embarrassing. I know it's a young team that at one point was like in the playoff discussion, so to speak. But man, that was embarrassing. Seven nothing. This is after, of course, the Bees beat the Wild on Saturday afternoon, five to two. Both these games, of course, big wins for the Bruins, because if you think about this, this Bruins team, they had lost three of four. And whenever they get themselves in even a little bit of a funk, they come out flying. Remember last time this happened where they were struggling a little bit, they ripped off 10 in a row. And now they've won three consecutive games. And it just sort of is the difference between the Celtics and the Bruins, right? The Celtics continue to be in this funk where it's been going on for a while now. The Bruins have a little bit of a downturn and they just completely pick it up. And again, they look like the best team at the NHL with the win over the Wild and this win over the Sabres where it's seven to nothing. It's just not close whatsoever. I mean, going back to that game against the Wild, just some ridiculous goals in that one. You had the beautiful Marshawn feed to Bergeron and then you had the great goal where, now it wasn't a great goal, but it was a great, play by Krejci to set up his own goal where he just left it for Zaka and then Zaka returns the favor, gives it to Krejci. Krejci's looking for a pasta, but it gets deflected into the net. And then you have a signature pasta power play goal 
after that and then had the unreal feed from Bergeron to DeBrus, where DeBrusque is coming in on the late change and Bergeron finds him in front of the net and DeBrus buries one. And DeBrusque has played really well since he's come back from the injury. Remember, right when he came back, wasn't the same guy yet. And now we're really seeing the impact that DeBrusque has had on this team. You just think about this game against the Sabres. Right off the bat, you get the goal from Bergeron, where it does not look like the Sabres are ready to play, where Carlo, nice play by Carlo to keep it in the zone there. And then DeBrus just throws one towards the net, and then Marshawn gets it behind the net. He feeds Bergeron, makes it one to nothing. Very easy goal for Bergeron in that particular situation. And then you had a great pass from Zaboral to Hathaway to make it 2 nothing in the first period. And then Clifton to Coyle to DeBrus for a goal, 3 nothing after the first period. This game is pretty much over. And then... Second period comes around, you see DeBrus just flying up the ice, which again, this is the impact that DeBrus can have with his speed. He finds Lindholm in front of the net, easy goal there. You had the power play goal from Pasternak, which was just, again, like this is the Bruins team we saw at the beginning of the season, where it's a vintage feed from Bergeron, and it could not have been an easier shot for Pasta to score there. And then they just rolled over, did the Sabres. I mean, they really rolled over after the first period, but... To let Coyle score to make it six to nothing on the feed from McAvoy. And then McAvoy, like the last goal, the seventh goal, he's just like gliding in there. And the Sabres have no interest in stopping him whatsoever. It was just an embarrassing look for the Sabres. But this is sort of what the Bruins do to you. They just demoralize that team and they just keep coming at you in waves and waves and waves. But I did want to get to Bergeron for a second because this is now back to back games with goals for him. And if you look at some of the numbers on Bergeron, They're really impressive. Like among forwards this year, the on-ice expected goals percentage is at 64.5%. That's first of the NHL. So 64.5% of the expected goals when Bergeron is on the ice are for the Bruins. That's how good Bergeron has been this season. The on-ice expected goal differential this season with Bergeron on the ice, 22.1, which is third. He's sixth in expected plus minus on the season. So all the numbers, like all the analytics, of course, they love Bergeron as well. And he entered Sunday, the only player with 900 faceoffs won. He's just been just a dominant player for the Bruins, as we know, for basically two decades now. But just looking through his career, right, he gets named captain in 2021, taken over for Chara. He was, you know, assistant captain for a long period of time, but he has the five Selkies and he's 37 and he's putting up all these numbers I just referenced at the age of 37. And he's really set the tone for this organization to continue to be successful. I mean, even if you go back to, the Mitchell Miller situation earlier this season. It was Bergeron who came out and talked about how this is an issue for the organization, how this is an issue for the team. That's leadership, right? He took the backseat for Chara for all those years as Chara was like the guy, he was the captain, et cetera. And then he just takes over. Right now, we all know that David Pasternak is the best player on the team. It's not like Bergeron has an issue with that whatsoever. He just plays his role and he does it at an outstanding level to the point that he's got five Selkies, right? But You see this whole trickle-down effect with Bergeron throughout the whole organization, that two-way ability. That's why you see all these guys. They got to be accountable on both sides of the ice because you have a guy like Bergeron who is doing this at the age of 37. I think that selflessness that Bergeron plays with where he's been one of the best players of the NHL for two decades now, where he plays the way that he plays, it rubs off on other players within the organization. And you can see that effect that he has, quite frankly, on everybody. And not to sound like too corny about this whole situation with Bergeron, but I just want to see him get that second cup. And you think about it, Crosby's got three, Kane and Taves have three in Chicago, or I guess now Kane in New York, but they had three in Chicago together. Stamkos and Kucherov got two, right? And I just feel like the second one for Bergeron would help his legacy so much. 
And if you think about sort of the pillars that we've had for each team since the turn of the century here locally, you had Brady, who's the gold standard, the six Super Bowls and the eight appearances, right? Of course, Brady's Brady. I mean, he's the gold standard. Ortiz, all the big moments, the walk-offs in 04 against the Yankees, the 2013 World Series where he was just incredible. And even before that, the this is our fucking city speech after the marathon bombing. And I still can't believe at the age of 40, this guy hit 315 with 40 bombs and a 1021 OPS, I should say. Just dumb. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. But all these guys, Brady, Ortiz, and Bergeron, they all played really well deep into their 30s, right? In the case of Brady, is 40s. Ortiz, 40. Bergeron's doing this at the age of 37. And Pierce, of course, was that guy for the Celtics. But, I mean, Bergeron's still doing it. <laughs> the guy's 37 years old. So, and like we talk about chasing down the history with this team, the points, the wins, et cetera, in terms of the records. Can you imagine if they do that with Bergeron as the captain and he wins another cup at this stage, wins another cup and they break all these records, even if they just break one of these records? I mean, it puts him really, I believe, in a totally different stratosphere here locally. We're talking about the best team ever statistically, right? I'm not comparing them to those Oilers teams or the Islanders teams or the great Canadians teams in the 70s. I'm not comparing them. I'm just saying from a statistical perspective, that's sort of the neighborhood that this Bruins team would be living in and it would be with Patrice Bergeron as the captain of this team. And the diehard Bruins fan, I know the diehard Bruins fan like appreciates Patrice Bergeron, certainly do. But I just feel like another cup will get the rest of the fan bases here locally to look back and say, holy shit, look at what this guy did for two decades, where if he can finish it off this year, he'll have two cups that he won. He made it to two other cups. The captain of the team set the record for the most Selkies. It's just going to be, I feel like he will be so much more appreciated if they finish the job this year. And all the moments of his career will be highlighted more than they ever had previous to this season. So I'm glad that Bergeron and they got Krejci back this season. And this looks like a group that really has an opportunity. The thing that to me that separates this team from the other teams in the NHL right now is the depth that they have. Now, the biggest opponent would be that Carolina team, which is awfully frightening. But the Bruins, I mean, this is as good of a chance as they've had. Now, in 19, this team is better than the 19 team. The 19 team, they just had everything break for them, right? Where you're thinking about... Early on, you have the Lightning, who ironically set the record in terms of the record that the Bruins are chasing down. That Lightning team got upset by Columbus, so you didn't have to play them. You didn't have to play Washington, who had won it the previous year. So you kind of had a path that was relatively easy to the Stanley Cup, and you didn't finish the job, and now you would have that opportunity to finish everything off. Okay, I did want to mention one college basketball thing before I leave, because it's sort of tied in here locally. So... The NCAA tournament kicks off and you have the number one seed Purdue on Friday night playing Fairleigh Dickinson. So I'm watching that game and Purdue is playing incredibly tight. Fairleigh Dickinson wins. Credit to Fairleigh Dickinson, all that. But what really pisses me off about that is I literally watched this a couple of weeks ago where Merrimack won the conference tournament. Merrimack beat Fairleigh Dickinson. Okay, they won that conference. Fairleigh Dickinson is in the tournament because of the fact that Merrimack has to wait because they came from Division Two to Division One, So there's this four-year waiting period just to get into the NCAA tournament. And like I said, I'm not taking anything away from Fairleigh Dickinson because what are you going to do? Say I'm not going to play in the tournament, right? They deserve to be in the tournament, I guess, by the rules, right? But the thing I just feel bad for is the players on Merrimack, right? Those guys are sitting in their dorm room on Friday night. I mean, they're probably doing other stuff, not just sitting in their dorm room, right? I mean, they're probably, they're in college, they're having fun, all that different type of stuff. But the fact that they got to sit there and they got to watch Fairleigh Dickinson 
beat Purdue, and they become this national story. Their coach yesterday, I'm on the treadmill, and I'm watching their coach being interviewed on college game day. Like, if you're a Merrimack guy, if you're a player on the team, you have to be thinking about this and saying, how the hell is this not us? Like, it's just going to be so aggravating. And, and look, I get there's a lot of stuff that goes into all these rules with college sports, but you would think it would be more difficult, right? Coming from D2 to go to D1 and you win the league and then you can't go. Like, it feels like that would be more difficult to do if you're coming from D1 going to D1. So anyway, that's just an itch I needed to scratch because that was so aggravating watching that the other day, seeing fairly Dickinson win. And by the way, Purdue, I mean, pff, that guy, Matt Painter and that team, how many big games are they going to lose? I mean, number one seed, you lose to the 16, just embarrassing. But anyway, I feel bad for Merrimack and I had to get that out there because of course, Merrimack, I got to give them their love here locally. All right, before we go, I want to give you the Boston Bet of the Week. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel. All right, so by the way, I did hit on the Bees game on Saturday. Pasta, anytime goal scorer, and I had them covering the puck line one and a half. That was plus 301. I lost my C's. Oh, I lost my C's jazz parlay last night, Saturday night, I should say. We had Jalen Brown, 25. He got that. Malcolm Brogdon, two threes, and the Celtics to cover by four and a half. You're up 117 to 113, okay, with a minute and 30 seconds left. Just get it done. I mean, you got Grant and Malcolm Brogdon can't figure it out defensively. Give up wide open three to Laurie Marketing. There's no way the, the C should have lost that game. And you, they should have covered. But anyway, okay, I got another one coming up. So I'm looking at this Celtics-Kings game coming up on Tuesday night. Okay, big game for the Celtics. They got to get back on track. The Kings have been the best offense in the NBA. But they're really bad defensively. They're actually 24th in the NBA. That's why a lot of people don't really believe in them in terms of their playoff aspirations. Although the West, there's a lot of shakiness throughout that conference. But nonetheless, just getting back to my original point. So here's what I'm looking at for a same game parlay coming up on Tuesday night. Kings and C's. I like Jalen, Tatum, and De'Aaron Fox all to score 25 points because we know the Kings, they like to get up and down. Fox is having an outstanding season. He's going to make an all-NBA team. Tatum's going to get back on track, and Jalen's just going to keep doing what he's doing. Jalen has been really carrying this team from an offensive perspective since the All-Star break. So that's my, that's my same-game parlay for Tuesday night. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel, Jalen, Tatum, and Fox each to score 25. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in, 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can also email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.